Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Military pilots are trained to thrive in chaos. Today's guest was not only one of the top fighter pilots in the entire U.S. Navy, he used to train them as well. Retired Commander Guy Snodgrass looks back at his time as a Top Gun instructor with his second book, Top Gun's Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. He's also the CEO of Defense Analytics, a strategic advisory firm serving government and the tech industry, as well as a TV commentator. Guy, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, Jeffrey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. You know, you kind of, you kind of look like Tom Cruise a little bit. You know, I got to <laughs> say, you know, that's not a bad thing. I think anybody who's about five foot ten with dark hair probably looks like uh, Tom Cruise if they're flying jets. But well, I appreciate to be it. a fighter, a fighter pilot, you have to kind of fit that mold. Like I'm six foot three, two hundred and some odd pounds. They would be put. They might put me in a bomber. They might put me in a bomber, but there I don't think they put me. They are certainly a transport plane. I think yeah. I, I could do a transport plane. And you'd want that too, right? You want that space so you can stretch your legs. I had some very tall friends who managed to cram themselves into the cockpit of a fighter plane. And uh, sometimes life can be pretty miserable on those six or seven hour long flights. Oh, you know, what is that one plane, the A-15 or A-10? No, if, which one's that one that's, that that's got all the 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 machine guns and they it's just a it's a that's got redundant systems. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's the uh, A ten Warthog and that's the, the Warthog. They use, yeah, in the Gulf War, et cetera. Yeah, that thing is uh, pretty small in the cockpit. Boy, someday when they retire that plane, I might have to buy one of those and just have it, just just to have it, just because that seems like a badass plane. I mean, they all are, <laughs> you know. Hey, in your first chapter of your book, Top Gun, uh, by the way, first of all, I, I apologize for this, not saying this right off the bat, but thank you for your service. Thank you for what you did for this country and what you continue to do and not only just leadership, but also uh, being a great veteran and being out there and talking. I, I appreciate it very yeah, much. Yeah, thanks so much for saying that. You bet. Well, my dad was a career Air Force, so we'll, we'll overlook this Navy thing for right now, but it's okay. It's all right. He was he, my dad was a senior master sergeant in the United States Air Force is, is most of his life and served three tours in Nam as well. So, yeah, I know what that's like for families. So, Absolutely. hey, listen, let's talk about your first chapter of your book, Top Guns, Top Ten Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. You talk about audition, you know, to become a top gun instructor. At first, you thought you failed. What happened? Tell me about that story. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, whenever you join any of these elite teams within the U.S. military, there's kind of a rush process that goes along with it. You have to not only apply, but once you've actually uh, made that application, if you kind of get into that final cut, typically those staffs are going to bring you in and they, and they want to see you perform. They want to see how you handle yourself, how you're going to be if you're accepted to be part of those elite teams. And Top Gun's no different. So when I had applied to become a Top Gun instructor uh, as part of the final selection process, they brought me out to where the school is now. It's located in Fallon, Nevada. So it's in the high desert there in the middle of the country. And you know what, you, what you're expected to do is, is you brief a Top Gun instructor. Then you go and you fly and, and simulated combat against them and you come back and debrief. So long story short, what you're alluding to in that first chapter is the fact that uh, I had gone up against one of the most senior Top Gun instructors. We're dogfighting. It's a very dynamic, challenging you know, type of flight. And he beat me. 
every single one, we'll call them sets, right? So you have three sets where you, uh, you know, you'll fight a set then you kind of, you, you reset your aircraft, you do it two more times and all three times he beat me. And I kind of found myself, you know, slouched down in the cockpit thinking, man, I just got destroyed. And there's no way that they're going to take a guy like me who just got beat three times and make me part of the staff. But, you know, you fall back on your training. We went back to the debrief and this wound up being the pivotal aspect of the flight. Uh, I called it like it was. I, I spent the time to walk them through very professionally and said, here are the areas where I didn't perform as well as I could have. Here's what we learned from it. Here's what I would do ne different next time. And, you know, and you basically are demonstrating your ability to teach. And I'll never forget at the end of that sequence of events, you know, after the debrief, he said, he kind of thoughtfully looked at me and said, yeah, I'm going to recommend you for the Top Gun staff because the reality is I'm a, you know, I've been a Top Gun instructor for years. I've got a lot of these skills you haven't yet developed yet, but but you're, you're you've got a lot of passion, you got a lot of talent, you got a lot of personality uh, that will make you a very good instructor. We can teach you to be a top-notch fighter pilot. That's something that can be trained, but you have those other innate characteristics uh, that matter. And so that's ultimately, you know, it was kind of a big surprise that it wasn't just about performance on every single mission. It was the fact that consistently over time, you're always seeking to improve yourself. And it was a great lesson to learn. Uh, before I'd even uh, I, arrived. As a I think that's important. I, you know, I, guy, I think that's important for everybody to understand. You know, you, you, let's say you step into the C-suite for the thing. You think you know everything, but if you're really good at what you do, you don't. You don't know everything. So you got to find out what those things are and are you teachable, right? And I think that's the key thing. He, he realized you were teachable. He realized that you could learn from those mistakes and they wouldn't be costly. But did you really think that you were going to beat that guy? You know, uh, when you go up against more senior individuals, a lot of times, you know, if, if you're on your A game, you may actually turn the turn the tables once or twice. Yeah. And so I'd hope yeah. to at least win one of those three sets and something you just touched on. Right. Not just teachable. I think the other thing that he was kind of secretly looking for was, hey, is this is this applicant? Is he arrogant? Uh, yeah. And I'm sure that's something like you said. I mean, you, I've seen when I work with C-suites, you know, you've got people who are dedicated to lifelong learning. They're incredibly humble. They realize that there's a lot of experts on their teams who want to continue to make the organization better. And it's about harnessing those skills and directing those talents, as opposed to always being, you know, the sole resource within an organization. And typically senior leaders like that don't, don't succeed, don't do well. And so I, I think to put it very plainly, he was just wanting to, to assess, are you humble? Are you, uh, like you said, are you teachable? And are you someone who two or three years down the road after you've become a senior top instructor, can you actually be approachable and teach those around you in a successful manner. Cause at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. I'm kind of curious too. How, how many, how many folks that graduate become instructors? You know, it's not many. Um, yeah. The Top Gun staff itself, uh, you've got uh, now it's got, it used to be four classes a year. Now it's down to three classes because there's just so much training you have to cram in. So each course is around 12 weeks long and you may have somewhere on the order of about 15 to 20 students going through to just simply graduate from Top Gun. And of those, you may have two to three who are invited to stay behind uh, and remain as Top Gun instructors. And, and when you when you do so, what's amazing about that tenure is it's one of the only places in the U.S. military where the, where the more junior individuals, like myself, I was a Navy lieutenant when I was a Top Gun instructor, and yet you're given the responsibility to be what's called the subject matter expert for the entire United States Navy and Marine Corps. You're working with America's intelligence agencies. You're working with other branches of the armed forces as well in order to um, carry the torch for whatever area you are assigned. And for me, that was air-to-air -air mission planning. Basically, how do you conduct aerial warfare? But I loved it that, that I had that experience so early in my 
in my career because it taught me, uh, like another chapter in the book, never wait to make a difference. The fact that mm-hmm. uh, you you always, no matter what organization you're a part of, no matter what business uh, you're in or, or where in the organization you find yourself, you can always make an incredibly positive difference. It's just being willing to take some risks, pick up that mantle and, and do run it. with it. Yeah, do it. Go, go do it. Yeah, Absolutely. don't talk about it. Do it. You know, I've I've been with many business leaders who tell me about what they're going to do. And I said, well, have you done it yet? No. Well, then <laughs> go do it. Then it's all air. What you're talking about is just a story. Move on. You know, exactly. and they, they get they get upset with me, but it's true. It's absolutely true. Hey, when you when I think about your book, um, is your book more of a guide for business or for life or for both? I'd say both. Um, and something, you know, I've got a copy right here just so people can kind of know what they're looking for when they pull it up on Amazon or on uh, Barnes and Noble or when you go into your local bookstore. I know it's in many of those as well. Um, you know, and it actually did come out just a couple months ago. So it is actually available now. Um, there you what go. I would say is that it's, it's uh, I would say both. I mean, I wrote it with an eye towards um, using very unique stories from my military experience, being a Top Gun instructor, especially knowing as we get into 2021 in the summer, you've got the second Top Gun movie coming out, right? So there'll be a natural interest in that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to tell some really good stories to draw a wide variety of readers in. I've had business leaders who picked up the book and reviewed it and who loved it. But I also wanted to write it so that my own 13-year-old son could pick it up and gain something from it, right? So it's those evergreen lessons that I feel like I picked up. I learned them as a junior pilot. I learned them as a Top Gun instructor, being around other amazing individuals who are at the top of their game. But as I continued in my own career, both in government service and also in the private sector, these are the, I guess, those evergreen traits that you find will continue to carry you through to success, regardless of where you find yourself. I mean, so it's it's not uh, tailored to one specific type of industry. These are more of those personal traits that will will help make you successful, regardless of where you find yourself. So... Tell me about your code name, Bus. How did you yeah. come by that? I would think they 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 go after your name or something, but how how did you get Bus? Right. Well, I mean, look, Snodgrass. It's kind of hard to find a catchy call sign that's going to rhyme <laughs> or align with my last name. Um, it, you know, it's interesting because uh, they, like you said, there's one of two ways you typically get a call sign. Either you do something incredibly dumb, uh, and they they give you a nickname because of it, or like you said, with your name. In fact, there was one pilot that uh, that I was friends with. His name was Ted Steelman. This is back in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. And there was this workout regime called the Buns of Steel. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so his call sign was Bunza, as in Buns of Steelman. Um, so that was just kind of a fun play on his, on his name. We had another guy uh, who was in my squadron, and he was on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. And he didn't realize his radio was stuck on. And he's cursing up a storm. He's getting really pretty frustrated with the flight crew on the, on the deck of the carrier who's not moving, I guess, at the speed at which he wanted. And so he got the call sign cuss. And of course, once you get assigned a call sign, you can't fight it. It's sticking with you. It's, it's, it is. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah. So in my case, uh, the call sign bus is simply because when I showed up in my very first squadron, that's usually when you, you get your call sign. It was uh, 2003. The Pittsburgh Steelers were the team to beat. I'm this scrawny, incredibly pale white kid uh, shows up in the fighter squadron and the team to beat were the Pittsburgh Steelers. You had a running back called Jerome Bettis, who was basically physically my exact opposite. His, his nickname was the bus. Uh, and so basically I show up and they hand me a new guy name tag and it was bus and it just happened to stick ever since. Well, there, that's pretty cool. Hey, listen, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this message and talk more with former Navy top gun instructor, CEO of defense analytics, uh, Guy Snodgrass. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we are back and you're listening and watching All Business with Jeffrey Hazel right here on C-Suite Radio, the world's largest business podcast network. Thanks so much. And don't forget to tell your friends. That's how we grow. We're growing at 450% right now over last year. It's amazing the growth that we're seeing at C-Suite Radio and all of our podcast shows, well over 250 shows right now. Listen, folks, I'm talking with Commander Guy Snodgrass, the former Navy Top Gun instructor. And we're asking, we just got through to finding out why he was called the bus. Now, as you say in your book, do the right thing when no one else is looking and never wait to make a difference. How important is it to always live your values? We talk a lot about that in our Hero Club here in the C-Suite Network. Oh, well, look, it's critically important. Uh, as you well know, as, as people who have continued to rise through their organizations and especially in business, I mean, the currency that tends to underpin your success is uh, trust. It's trusted relationships. It's the fact that when you deal with someone, uh, you learn pretty quick. Are they a person of their word or are they someone who... Uh, might be excessively transactional, or they, or they'll tell you one thing, and uh, you know, to your face, and do do something different behind your back. And and the reality is, whether you're in uniform and you're flying combat missions, or you are uh, handling these major multi-million or multi-multi-billion dollar deals, um, people have to be able to trust you. And so, yes, you have to be able to live your your ideals. Uh, sometimes it can be challenging because in the near term, you realize that there's a shortcut you can take, and you feel like yeah. ah, if I could just you know, take this shortcut, it'll be okay, I'll do it this one time. And what you find is that once you start compromising your values, uh, it's too easy for it to become a habit. And and truly, you know, if you're thinking about the long game, um, people uh, that I've seen who have done incredibly well in business are the ones who just stick to their guns. You know, you, you think about, uh, of course, everyone knows Warren Buffett and the fact that he's a very approachable, very humble kind of guy, but he's had amazing success and he's attracted people to his banner um, who are drawn towards leaders of character like that. So yes, absolutely. Uh, you cited two of the chapters in the book, never uh, wait to make a difference. Uh, and also the fact that you've got to do the right thing, even when no one's looking. And I, and I share a story in the book about how, uh, unfortunately, a sailor on the aircraft carrier I was serving on uh, when we went over to fight in the, uh, in the Gulf War had lost his life because someone didn't do their job correctly. Um, and, and that cost someone mm. their life. And, and that's the real consequences of, of really making a mistake. And a lot of times I say in business, no one's going to die. But when it comes to the military and what they do every day, without question, someone can. So you do the right things. What do you, th- you, you talk about the top 10? What's the most important lesson of the top 10? Well, you know, I think, you know, so Top Gun instructors are famous for the response. It depends. And it's because we realize every situation is unique. Every situation is different. You know, the variables you come into it with are going to change. So I would tell you, it depends. I mean, if I had to pick one that I think is just most evergreen, that makes a difference throughout your life, throughout your career, uh, the impact you can have in the world is uh, never wait to make a difference. The fact that, again, it's about yeah. being proactive. It's about, uh, look, I mean, I, I've shared and if I put it this way in the book. I mean, we're all pretty optimized to recognize shortcomings, to see the problems, to see the friction points within our organization. But there's there's truly a very slim number of individuals, usually around 10 to 15% of any organization that will recognize those problems and then kind of look around and say, why isn't anybody fixing this? And if not me, then who? 
And so they jump right in and they, they not only help become part of the solution uh, to either solve a problem or to take, uh, take advantage of an opportunity that exists. And those typically wind up being those, those leading individuals that will continue to rise and be very successful because look, every, every business leader wants people like that on their team. One of the lessons in your book is not to confuse activity with progress, you know, like we were talking about, quit talking about the story, get to it, right? Are we just too busy to get ahead right now? Well, I think that's something we always have to fight against, right? Um, and the reason, you know, I share a couple stories that I've experienced throughout my career. Uh, and, it, and it becomes, you know, I find this a lot too. I, I work with a lot of large Fortune 500 companies. And uh, when you get a chance to to work with those leaders, and then you work with uh, many of the rank and file members of the company, as as you know, at all various levels, you find that there, it's very easy to step into a routine. And so mm-hmm. we've all seen this with companies that have meetings that are just regularly scheduled, and and they're this just there. And people will walk in with the expectation that uh, I'll learn everything I need at this meeting. I don't have to come prepared. Um, you know, you get caught up in your inbox and in the email, you're, you're fielding phone calls. So you walk in into your business space, maybe at eight or nine in the morning, you handle a lot of these tasks throughout the day. And then you, you get ready to go home at four or five, 6 PM. And you kind of look back and say, what, what did I actually accomplish? You know, I was doing a lot of the busy work, but did I actually move closer to our strategic goals? And a lot of times you find the answer is no. And so that's, that's the reality is, is a lot of times, in fact, Google was famous in the last week or two for publishing that they're going to basically go a month without having any any meetings because they wanted to buy that kind of time back for their for their workers and realizing that only you should only be meeting if you have a, a significant reason to do so. And, I like that rule. I yeah. like that rule. Yeah, I'm so tired of me. And I'll tell you that yeah. um, as a you know, so stepping back into my role as a senior leader in the military, I was a squadron commander for a for a fighter squadron in Japan. I had 240 sailors, I had 12 aircraft. Um, and, and one of the expectations I set early on, and it's great, as a leader, as you know, that's one of the best things about your job is you set the expectations for how the organization will run, how your team will behave. And so everyone's looking to you both not only for the verbal guidance you give, but also they're watching your actions because your actions speak louder than your words ever can. So in this case, one of the, one of the things that I made sure people understood was that if, you, if we have a meeting, it's for a reason. It's typically to make a decision. And so you come to the meeting fully prepared. And we always had uh, what we called read aheads, right? So the day or two days prior, you'd make sure all the decision makers coming to that meeting already had the slides, already had all the background material they needed. The expectation was you had you show up, you've already read it. There's a discussion to air any concerns or talk about some of the second and third order effects that might occur. And then at the end of that meeting, if, if I was the person as the senior leader in the room expected to make the decision after taking all that input, you decide and you move on. But otherwise, you can you can rapidly find yourself going down rabbit holes with meetings where people expect to show up, and that's the first time they've even thought about the subject material for that meeting, and that's just wasted time. Wasted time, and I hate wasting time. And I, hey, speaking of time, we're going to come back and talk about pulling G's. But first, I want to pull some ads. I'll be right back after this message. C-suite radio. Hey, we are back and we're live casting right here on LinkedIn and Facebook as we bring you all business with Jeffrey Ezzett right here on C-Suite Radio. I'm talking to Commander Guy Snodgrass, the former Navy Top Gun instructor, CEO of Defense Analytics. And of course, we're talking about his new book, Top Gun's Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. And we're talking right now about G's. So let's talk about that. Everybody's got forces in business pulling at them one way or the other. Well, can you talk about what it's like to pull some G's. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're referring to pulling G's, you know, if you're sitting here like we are having this conversation, you're experiencing one G. 
right? It's the force of the Earth's gravity pulling you down. Um, when you get into a high-performance fighter jet or even, you know, when you're driving your automobile and you take a, a turn going fast or you accelerate or decelerate quickly, you know, you feel those pressures on your body. Well, when you're flying a high-performance fighter jet, you can pull easily up to 7.5. Uh, and depending on the aircraft, I flew another plane called the F-16, the Viper, um, which could pull nine Gs. And that means, you know, your wow. arm, if it's 16 pounds, now weighs nine times that. And so it's forcing not only your your body down in the seat, but it's also forcing the blood from your head down towards your feet. That's why you have, you know, an anti-G suit, as we call it. Uh, you know, it's basically like leggings uh, with a torso harness you wear. It helps give you something to push against so you can force that blood back up. And I love the way you put that, right? The fact that those were some of the very obvious forces as fighter pilots we were fighting against. But like you mentioned, I mean, every organization, every business has those internal and external forces that you have to uh, contend with on a daily basis. I think I like well, the way you and we're seeing that right now, Guy. I mean, you draw some parallels in your book, uh, especially in the epilogue of your book. You talk about response to the Japanese uh, Tsunami back in 2011, COVID-19 pandemic, lessons you learned as a top gun instructors. You know, there's a lot of, lot of. Let's just, I'll say it. There's a lot of shit going down right now. I mean, without question, you know, the the in terms of blatant racism that's coming forward, the the political climate that we've got, the economic climate, which is the worst it's ever been, the the fear over COVID. What can people do to better adjust to chaotic situations, and what mind frame can we learn from Top Gun that we can ad adopt here? Yeah, it's a great question. I would step back to kind of two elements from the book that resound throughout. And when I do a lot of public speaking, it's the same two elements I talk about there too, especially when you, like you mentioned, 2020, whether it's the political climate, the social climate, the economic climate, a lot of challenges this year. Uh, and that wasn't even before you had the pandemic hit. So um, there's a lot of challenges you have to face. The number one thing that I learned as a Top Gun instructor, and I learned throughout my career working with uh, you know, the president, uh, cabinet secretaries, is stay calm under pressure. And I, I've seen this apply just as much to individuals, to families, as much as they do to business leaders. And that's just the recognition that in a lot of cases, emotion is the enemy of good judgment. So if you find yourself getting too caught up in a situation, too emotionally worked up, it's hard to make a really good, thoughtful decision. So you want to, you know, in the military, we call it compartmentalization. It's the ability to train yourself to kind of almost step outside of the situation and, and, and take a very clear-eyed look at it comes in great, especially when you find yourself facing a chaotic situation, uncertain times, et cetera. So you want to stay calm under pressure is number one. The second thing is just the, the simple truth of uh, always thinking strategically, having a plan. Where do, you, where do you want to see yourself? Where do you want to see your team or your business in six months, one year, three year, five year? Um, and if you have those stakes in the ground, you have a direction to point towards, you know, it's like a ship. Um, the wind or the current can push you off course, but you're always pointing in the right direction. And what you find is, is if you get too reactionary, if you find yourself just getting batted around by those same tides and winds, uh, it's very hard to ultimately arrive at your destination. So by staying calm under pressure, you'll make better decisions. And by constantly thinking about where do I really want to go, given the realities of the situation I'm facing right now that my business might uh, see as the current environment and the predicted environment, what can we be doing to put ourselves in the best, most advantageous position to succeed? Fantastic. Well, what is there a good story that didn't from your Top Gun days that didn't make it into the book? Oh man, there's there's a thousand good stories. I mean, everything from just the camaraderie that we experienced yeah. as the Top Gun instructors working with the the students. You know, I'll never forget going out on the, the training range and watching some of the students actually dropping live bombs, and I'm less than a mile away, so you could you could truly see the bomb go off, the concussion wave go out, and you feel it. 
I mean, we, we had a, an amazing time and I was very, uh, not only lucky, but, uh, incredibly humbled to have had that kind of a opportunity very early in my career. Yeah, that's fantastic. You also have a podcast called holding the line where you talk about national security and foreign affairs. What made you want to get into podcasting? You know, I think it's a great, as you yourself, have, I'm sure found out, right? I mean, it's a great way yeah. to connect with individuals. I found that uh, it's kind of twofold. One, you're providing a service to uh, people who are coming up behind you. And I think each of us have a basically a requirement in life to, to kind of extend that hand, take the lessons we've learned, the experiences we've had and, and pay them forward to the next generation. So I like the fact that there's a lot of junior leaders in business and in national security who have gravitated towards the podcast. So it's providing a value and a benefit to them. The second thing, uh, and I and I think this is a great example of it, is you meet some amazing people when you when you invite them on to be your guests, yeah. uh, and it's a lot of times you find that there's some common ground and you stay in touch in the months and years to come. And I think that that's a big element of success in life and in business is is forming those very diverse networks, uh, finding people who are like minded that you want to be associated with and you can learn from, and you just keep on running forward. I did, you know, one last question here, and I'd, I'd love to continue to go more, but man, we, we run out of time with these. Uh, you ended up uh, being General Mateus's uh, speechwriter and chief of communications. How'd you get that gig? Yeah, I think a lot of times in life, right, our careers, it's, it's you know, you have an idea of where you would like to be, but then fate and timing intervene. Exactly. Uh, the U.S. military is pretty static with its career path, but I was I was lucky years earlier. I had been uh, I recently, you know, I graduated from a school called the U.S. Naval War College. It's up in Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. It. So it's a great school and you learn a lot about uh, history and about and it may be a much better writer. From that job, I was asked to become the speechwriter to the head of the U.S. Navy. I had that job for a little over a year before I took squadron command. And so when I came out of squadron command, we had done incredibly well. I was still on the path upward and onward. And uh, Secretary Mattis was the newly appointed Secretary of Defense, and he needed someone who could run his communication team. As you might imagine, in the U.S. military, there's very few people who know how to write speeches and, and work in that environment. So because of my previous experience, I got drafted and brought in and, and spent about a year and a half with him touring the world and working with the White House, working with other you know, interagency organizations to help uh, not only pl you know, plan and strategize the future of U.S. national security and, and how we wanted that to look, but also to uh, work with a lot of amazing people to communicate that effectively to Congress and the American public. So it was a great opportunity and, and really learned a ton from it. You know, we had a great event that we were supposed to hold in Newport um, in Virginia, out of Newport, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia. And we had, uh, oh man, I had uh, Admiral Becker there. I had uh, uh, for another Admiral there. I had uh, Commander uh, I had, we had so many unbelievable uh, officials, former officials from the military now out there. And it was like learning from the front lines. This is another great example right here, folks, learning from top guns. This is this is the way to make it happen. Make sure you rush out and buy the book. Hey, Guy Snodgrass, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. We appreciate all you've done for this country. Appreciate what you're doing to help businesses right now, too, because, hey, right now, you know, for a lot of us, we we can't, uh, we're not doctors, we're not nurses, we can't even sew masks. So what we can do is be business first responder. And here's a guy who's a business first responder and really taking you and taking you military lessons and learn the hard knocks and the hard way. And these guys have done it now, he put it into business. So thank you so much for being there and doing that and appreciate all you've done. Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey. Great to be with you and uh, have a have a great Thanksgiving. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about the things that I learned. I'll tell you, I learned a lot today. First of all, what a great guy. What, what a great, don't, don't you just feel safe when you listen to people 
like Commander Snodgrass? I mean, you you feel like you're in good hands and the military is in good hands with really smart people who are very talented. That's one thing. The other thing, again, is uh, I think it's around humility. I, that's the thing I, I thought. Remember what he said? He went in thinking he was going to beat at least one or out of three of those stories and he was going to be able to get one of them. And that didn't uh, that didn't happen. Right. He got beat all three times, but he sat down afterwards and talked about where he made his mistakes and what it was. And he was humble about it. And by being humble, he learned and he's a teach he's teachable. And that's what we should learn every so often. We don't know what we're supposed to know all the time. We're not, we think we're supposed to be the smartest people in the room and we're not. We're supposed to be the most strategic people in the room. That's our job. So sometimes people can teach us great lessons if we just got to listen. So go in there not knowing what you know. And be in a constant state of awareness, and you're going to do a lot better at that job if you pay attention and learn. That's what I learned right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Don't forget to tell your friends and tune in to C-Suite Radio. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.